This is Young Lawyer Rising from the ABA Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. I'm your host, Montana Funk. Today, Tracy Lesitar-Smith joins us to discuss building momentum in your career and managing expectations. Tracy is a trailblazer in sports law. She served as Bellator MMA's first female general counsel and most recently was general counsel and VP at NASCAR. Listeners, I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Tracy, I just want to start off by saying how jealous I am. I can see the warm weather. You're in Hawaii. I am in cold and I am jealous. Well, I have to tell you, I am a person who does love seasons. And so uh, the, the weather here is fantastic. It's amazing. The Ko'olau Mountains are cloudless today and incredible, epic but I am still one for seasons. So so I will get a little <laughs> bit jealous of you because I can see that you've got your cold weather wardrobe out, something that I don't really bring out a whole lot here uh, on the island of Oahu. That's fair. And I guess I can't complain too much. I have a work conference next week in the mountains and it's going to be a hot springs. So that's a nice perk about being in like the cold mountains. I can go sit in the hot springs and it's not dying of heat. So I guess I can't complain too much. That sounds like a fantastic experience and, and hot springs are incredible. Yeah, I'm excited. But let's just kind of jump right into it. Overall, you are just, I mean, you're awesome. You are so powerful. I've read a lot about you. And I have to say, I mean, I know that you've done mixed martial arts. That's correct, right? Yeah, I've been a martial artist for about 20 years, always a student, right? Always trying to trying to learn new things and embracing the the joy of tripping over myself and getting hit and, <laughs> and falling and tearing things, especially as I as I get older. Um, but I, I really love to train martial arts. We are a martial arts family. Um, my kids do it. My husband is a, a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And wow. so um, we it's, it's a really important part of our lives. Um, and so while I can't say that I have ever been a mixed martial arts fighter, those those folks are incredibly gifted and special. I really love martial arts and it's it's a great passion of mine. It's something that, that I have a great amount of respect for. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, kind of segueing into your career, obviously you worked with Bellator MMA and then you were VP at NASCAR. Those are really big, you know, male dominated areas, right? Yeah. That's kind of what at least... I think the outside world probably sees, right? So, I mean, my first question for you is just obviously being awesome and doing all this stuff with male-dominated industries. How did you get started with that and how did that feel? Sure. You know, I think that it is true that both sports are definitely perceived as being male-dominated. I think that what's interesting is when you when you look at mixed martial arts in, in particular, it has in the time, from the time that I started working in mixed martial arts, it has truly radically gender diversified. You have women who are the main event on pay-per-view cards now, something that, you know, 20 years ago was really not not something that anyone in any of the major promotions, um, or at least in the UFC, for example, were prepared to, to do. In NASCAR, you don't yet have women in the field 
of the cup races, right? But you do have this pipeline, this diverse pipeline that is coming up. Regardless, I do think that they are both perceived probably correctly as being male dominated. And yes, it is true that very often on the business side as a senior leader, you are one of or the only woman in the room. And and I think that that's, that's something that over time really begins to sort of steal you and it galvanizes you, but it also really makes you understand the power of being a first and only a different, right? That you have perspective and you have skills that perhaps others in the room don't necessarily have. And that's not to say that, that their skills are, are, are lesser. It's just having different perspectives in the room makes for a better business. It's been proven. It's been studied. It's a fact. Absolutely. And how did you decide that that was an area you wanted to go into, you know, kind of breaching the, the sports realm? How did you decide, yeah, that's what I want to do. That's where I want to go. And especially with such big companies. Sure. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, um, Truly, I I went to law school. I had been in politics for a few years. I went to law school basically just to go back into politics, to get a grad degree, go back into politics. I was working for the late, great Congressman Elijah Cummings, and it became clear that in order to continue progressing, I should probably go get my grad degree. Uh, And he was the one who actually convinced me that I should go and get my JD. I'm thankful. Uh, but I thought I was going to continue back into politics. So so I ended up kind of falling into the sports world the way one does a, you know, wipeout course on those crazy television shows, right? You just kind of fall. Sometimes it's with style. Sometimes it's just falling. <laughs> and and that is really how I happened into it. You know, I, I had been a martial art artist uh, for, as I said, many years. By the time I started practicing... I really was a casual follower follower of MMA. And when I got to Sacramento to start practicing as a labor and employment litigation associate at a wonderful firm in a great office, I started training at Team Alpha Male, which for those who are MMA fans, um, they will probably know that that was really, at the time, one of the leading camps that was supplying fighters to the WEC and later to all of the lighter weight divisions of the UFC and also Bellator. So training there really started bringing my attention and a colleague of mine's attention at the firm to the fact that there were all these lawsuits going on in this nascent industry. But the MMA media at the time was also still in its very early stages. And nobody was really reporting on it in a truly meaningful way such that you could ensure the fans understood the values at play, the the battles at play, what each side was really arguing. It was really oftentimes just kind of a rehash of what the press releases were that were coming from the promotions of the parties that were actually involved. So we saw an opportunity and we started on the side moonlighting essentially as MMA journalists for what was at the time the primary supplier of MMA content to ESPN.com, which was at the time SureDog.com. And so we wrote these articles and, and essentially turned it into a business development opportunity. I was a third year. I was a junior. I was still a, a junior, rising junior at the firm. 
uh, and we started bringing in MMA industry clients. Eventually, we brought in Bellator. And around the time that I was beginning to clue into the fact that perhaps the billable hour wasn't necessarily my favorite Mm -hmm. and not necessarily where I felt I was best, that was around the time that Bellator was coming to grips with the fact that it was growing and it needed a GC. So I jumped from the firm to Bellator and all in from the time that I started working at the firm for Bellator as a client through when I departed Bellator, uh, you know, I was probably in the fight industry for almost a decade. And, And so I think that that was really an interesting exercise because we really had this very, at the time, niche industry that not a lot of people fully understood from a business and legal standpoint and where you can find a niche like that and bonus something that you are passionate about that is a perfect marriage. That's really something that can, even if it doesn't take you all the way through your career, you know, a career is a jungle gym, right? It's not a ladder. It's not necessarily logical. It's not a straight vector in a straight line. Um, But that can really give you interesting opportunities to learn and grow in ways that you might not otherwise have. So what would you say then to young lawyers or, you know, people starting out in their legal career who want to do something big like that, who want to take, you know, these niche areas and expand it, but don't either know how to or don't think that they can? How did you gain that confidence to be like, no, look, I can do this. It is something I'm passionate about. And even though I am so new to this area in the legal world, you know, gaining that confidence to actually explore that when you have people who are, you know, partners or above you or have been in the industry for years, how do you kind of balance that being so new, but also being like, yeah, but I know that I can do this. You know, here's what I would say. Spoiler alert. Law school doesn't teach you everything you need to know to (laughs) practice law. In case anybody had any illusions about that, and that is really just systemic, right? You know, law school is mostly time plus knowledge, right? You're spending time, you're gaining knowledge. And I think that true experience is time plus knowledge, plus the application of that knowledge in an environment that has consequences, right? Or has consequential pressures, right? So Mm -hmm. I, I would say this, I think the joy of being a beginner is something that I would truly embrace as a young lawyer in all aspects. And that is in the movie, Dr. Strange, uh, I'm, I'm a Marvel person, so I- I'm, I, I love Marvel. <laughs> I, I love Dr. Strange, okay. So, so in that movie, when he goes to, I think it's Kamertage, he is given an environment in which to practice that is safe, where he can practice his craft, where he can make mistakes, and ultimately then be better for it, stronger for it. And when he goes out into the real world, he is much more experienced. If you can find those environments as a young lawyer, I really think that is huge. I mean, think about it this way. Let, I mean, we can, we can draw a metaphor with, with martial arts. If I'm practicing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and my goal is to go into a tournament and I'm studying videos and books, right? But I'm not actually going to class and rolling and sparring and drilling 
in that environment with the coach standing over me. The first time I practice Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I don't want it to be in the high pressure consequential environment of, you know, the pans, right? Or, or, the, or the Europeans, right? And this huge tournament where, where you're up against people who really have been practicing and, and, and drilling and sparring against the monsters in their academy, right? You need to, if you can, find places where you can get reps. I think that a young lawyer should probably benefit from looking at their career in chunks. The first one to three years of your practice, you are gaining knowledge and building skills, right? Fundamentals, focus on the technique, focus on the fundamentals. Years four through seven, that is about applying those skills in consequential pressured environments and building your instincts. And everything after that is about people. Managing up, managing down, managing laterally, understanding how to get stakeholder buy-in. This is, this is management and leadership, right? So I would say that while you're in the safe environment, it is kind of fun to find places where you can apply your skills and passion and really learn, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that you need to run out in your first year and, and try to hang out your shingle unless you need to uh, and, and, you know, build your own practice around the power slap league, right? Or around curling, right? I think that it is really important to to find these environments where you have mentors, where you have people who can stand over you, essentially, the metaphor, and watch you drilling and correct where you need help with your technique, right? You need to not be defensive about that as a young lawyer. Embrace the joy of the fact that you are still a bit of a beginner, right? And there is something that is that is truly beautiful about that. You should be able to be in an environment where you can make a few mistakes. Pain may be involved. Ego, ego may get a few bumps and bruises along the way. That is something that will happen. And that is totally okay. Absolutely. And I want to touch base on that. And I kind of want to go, you know, into the building momentum to go from those one to three years to the, you know, seven up. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. Then we come back, we can discuss that. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? 
InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. So before the break, Tracy, we were kind of talking about the steps from, you know, year one to three and then obviously four to seven and onwards. So what would you provide in terms of advice for people who are in those first couple of years who want to build momentum, who want to eventually become management, knowing that there are these kind of differences between generations, between, you know, partners and associates, or even just in general, you know, bigger firms versus small firms. And I I know that's kind of a loaded question, but I just kind of want to gain you know, insight for all listeners who kind of come from every different perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great question. And and I can understand why sometimes this, this is confusing. And sometimes you are given mixed messages, right? Because if you are in an organization where advancement and receipt of new and challenging opportunities is in the hands of leaders, management, more experienced attorneys than you, then I can guarantee you it all boils down to one thing, trust. Advancement new opportunities depends on whether or not you can build sufficient trust. Once you've built trust, you will start to see those opportunities and challenges roll in, right? One of the things that I have seen that I've probably had some experience in too while I was a junior is I think that generationally, sometimes we are unfairly not telling our younger lawyers what it is that we actually expect of them from a clockwork standpoint. And let me differentiate between clockwork and substance, right? Clockwork are the things that you can do and expectations you can meet no matter how smart or not you are, right? They are basic things. Substance actually has to do with your skill, your talent, your authentic self, the person that you bring to work and the experience and life that you bring to bear for the purpose of the business. Paying attention to some of these sort of nitpicky clockwork type of things, this can really build you trust quickly. It can also lose you trust very quickly if you aren't paying attention. But I believe that if you have a little bit of discipline and you understand what these expectations are, then I think that you can meet these expectations and you can advance. So here would be my suggestions for ways to quickly build trust, things that you can do on a daily basis as a junior lawyer in your organization that are going to allow the leaders and management to focus on your substance and not these clockwork things. If you meet these expectations, you can easily get new opportunities and grow, right? First of all, I would say 
always be a team player, right? Be there for the team, be there for what the team needs. Put your ego on a shelf, especially while you're a junior, okay? It's really, really important. And, and by the way, this applies to leaders as well. But when you're a junior, it's especially important. If people feel like you are always looking out for number one, then they really can't trust you completely, right? So Absolutely. I would say, just remember, you need, to, you need to be a team player and always be thinking ahead and anticipating what the team needs, right? And, and keep your team close, right? Secondly, and this is a really basic one, guys, but punctuality. If you are the most junior person in any given meeting and you are consistently three to 10 minutes late to every meeting, people start to believe that you believe your time is more important than their time. And some of these people hold the keys to your opportunities. Now, does punctuality have to do with the substance of your talent and how smart you are? No, it has nothing to do with it. So my advice would be plan to be at any meeting five minutes beforehand. If you're the first one there, you've done your job. <laughs> and, and even block off a, a 10 to 15 minute piece of time or a block of time before that meeting starts so that you can print out and review quickly anything you need to have for that meeting, right? Third thing I, I would think through too is Advancement is usually after you've demonstrated small tasks done well. There is a book that I read ages ago that, that was profoundly resonant for me, and it's by a journalist who went to culinary school. He went to the CIA in New York and learned how to be a chef. And as part of his training, he had to do essentially an internship in, I think, mm -hmm. a Michelin starred restaurant. And wow. one of the things that they were very clear on, and if you read Cook's memoirs or Chef's memoirs, you will find a lot of this. When you get into the kitchen and you are on the line, they will start you with dicing onions and cutting potatoes, right? And mm -hmm. if you are doing that, and you're churning out a bunch of motley looking, ugly, uneven onions and potatoes, you're gonna stay there until you demonstrate that you can consistently produce the perfect dice over and over. Yeah. The difference between being an amateur and being a professional in anything is consistency under pressure. So you need to be demonstrating the metaphor pulling in, you need to be demonstrating to your leadership and management that the small tasks that they give you are done in a perfect dice every time. No typos, right? No formatting issues, you know, syntax, grammar, all the little things, the small tasks, those are your job. You need to dice that onion perfect every single time. And then they will move you from the onions and the potatoes onto the sauce station but you have to demonstrate the perfect dice first, right? So small tasks done well. Um, fourth, and this may be a little bit controversial, but <laughs> every, every workplace has internal politics, okay? It exists everywhere, okay? As a junior, it is good for you to put your ears up and be aware but 
do not get involved or start taking sides unless you are forced to. I assure you, mm -hmm. you are way in over your head. Don't do it. There's years and years of history behind a lot of those political divisions. Your job is to be on everyone's team. You are the best team player and you love to do small tasks well and you love to be punctual <laughs> and you love to learn from everyone, right? So so yeah. I would I would be treading lightly in getting involved with or talking about with other people office politics, right? Um, you know, and I also in the same vein would would think strongly on how you are representing your organization outside of the company, right? Outside of working hours. I love social media. Social media is an incredible technological resource that allows us to get information and keep up with people across continents yeah. and time zones over years, right? But do understand that even though you may feel like the little man on the totem pole, there are probably people who work with you, who may follow you on social media. Just remember when you are posting things that are in a more public forum and public facing place like that, that you should feel free, even as the sort of junior person, you should feel free to think of yourself as a representative of the company. And if yeah. you're posting something, something or you're saying something publicly that might reflect badly, just think about it hard. Think twice about it, right? Um, because those are things that can unwittingly derail somebody and take away trust totally unnecessarily and, and sometimes yeah. very unfairly, right? I would also, I think a couple more things. I would also, you know, in the same vein, pick your battles, right? As a, I think generationally, we are in this, in this beautiful set of generations, honestly, where I think unlike older generations, this generation really has more info, more tech at its fingertips. They have a voice, right, at their fingertips. They, they can project their voice. And, and it feels like generationally, the young lawyers right now, the young professionals want to have respect. They wanna have flexibility, right? They wanna have a voice. They want to have meaningful relationships. They wanna have a joyful life and they wanna have meaningful work. And these are wonderful things that everybody should be trying to achieve. All I'm saying is I think that sometimes as a junior, you, you have to pick your battles and understand that there are some things that are dug into company culture and, and you have to look at them and say, all right, is that the hill I'm going to die on today? Right? I guarantee you, no matter how junior or how senior you are, someone at some point is going to tick you off. And you have to ask yourself, I need to, am I picking the right battle, right? There will be time later in your career where you, if you still feel strongly, you, you know, smote your enemy's ruin on the mountainside, right? But you need to always ask yourself, is this the battle? And if it is, then take it respectfully and articulately and concisely, right? 
But if it's not, then, then I think it's okay to kind of put it on the shelf. Keep it in mind, put it in your mental file, but it's not always that you have to fight the war on every single thing, right? You're mm-hmm. still learning. You're still learning. So, so embrace that. And, you know, I think too, if a leader or a manager tells you that you need to do more of something, you know, Montana, we need to see you communicating in a little bit more of a timely fashion with the client on X, Y, and Z types of assignments, okay? Don't be defensive. Lose the defensiveness. Embrace the joy of still being a bit of a beginner. Lose the defensiveness. Mm -hmm. If they tell you you need to do more or less of something, believe them. Believe them and and act on it. You have the power to do that. You have the agency to do that. You control these things that I'm talking about, these little sort of clockwork things. These are things that really don't have to do with how smart or talented or amazing and authentic you are. Let's put the spotlight on that. If you can, with a little bit of discipline, simply execute on these small things, I think that you'll find that you can build trust very quickly and you will find opportunities coming your way. Absolutely. And I think also important for, you know, people listening, because I do think we have some people who maybe you know, a little bit down the road in their career listening, who might be in those management positions. What advice would you have to people who are higher up in their career to manage their expectations of what to expect from newer attorneys? Fantastic question. You know, I think that as managers, sometimes we aren't as fair as we should be in communicating these expectations. And oftentimes, expectations only get communicated when something has gone awry. The more that you can meet with the people who report to you, meet with your more junior staff, and just let them know, hey, listen, just so you know, FYI, I'm sure you already know this, and give them the benefit of the doubt. But here's typically what we expect, right? Mm-hmm. I know you can do this and, and, and allow them, give them the oxygen in the room to execute on it. There's no need to hide the ball, right? Unless you have discriminatory reasons <laughs> for acting or, or, or giving feedback to an employee or a young lawyer, there's no need to hide the ball. I think it's, I think it's okay to have candid conversations with love and mm-hmm. mentorship, because at the end of the day, your your more junior lawyers need coaching, right? And as you move into your sort of four to seven to eight to nine to 10 years of practice, you need to be giving back and you need to be becoming a good, solid, effective, but loving coach for your people. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's really important too, because I think you can build those relationships with the junior lawyer and the senior lawyer and building those relationships by, you know, being the junior lawyer, working on those smaller things and then being the senior lawyer, working on that loving aspect. That's where the trusting relationship will then form. So I think yes. that that's really important. And, and thank you for touching on that. And I mean, I only have a couple more questions for you, but one I do want to ask before I let you go is, you know, talking about being your authentic self and finding meaning in what you do. If you could give our listeners one piece of advice to find that purpose in themselves and find who their true self is, so that their job, you know, is this rewarding as it can be, what would that piece of advice be? 
Oh, it's such a good question, right? And I think the answer can be different for everyone. But two things I would say. One, what excites you? That's a question that you have to ask yourself at some point in your career. I actually, I think it's perfectly okay for you to be a young lawyer and and working maybe in a sector or an industry that's maybe not your favorite. As long as you feel you are getting good, enriching experiences, right? Because remember, experience, no matter what experience is, what time plus knowledge, plus application of that knowledge under consequential pressure, right? And so if you're getting good experience, I think that you can you can change and shift lanes at any point in your career. Don't let anybody tell you that, that you can't do that. Some changes may take longer. They may be longer mm-hmm. paths, but don't let anybody tell you that you can't do it, right? So you ask yourself what excites you, but also, you know, understand once you've got this experience, you can be entrepreneurial, right? You can be entrepreneurial. And I, and I think that's something that I was really fortunate to be able to experience, but I couldn't have done it without the help of leaders and managers who are willing to empower me to be entrepreneurial. That's where the trust comes in. But also too, I think shifting gears, kind of take a look too at what kind of meaningful work you want to be doing in the course of your meaningful life, right? So understand all the things you're passionate about. The more things you're passionate about, the better. Finding joy and interest and true curiosity in many things is, those are building blocks for, I think, a really good working life. But there are many things that make us interesting people. Montana is an incredibly interesting person. You have done all these interesting things in your life. You have different interests, right? And those things make you the interesting person that you are. Just remember, you don't want to arrive into a stage of life where you look around and you realize that all the things that made you an interesting person, you don't do them anymore. None of them. That is a day I would say you should be maybe considering making some changes, Mm -hmm. right? Because at the end of the day, unless you are actually curing cancer, in which case, you know, please get off this podcast and go back, (laughs) go back to curing cancer. We really need it, right? At the end of the day, you know, prioritizing things. And this is more for the managers, I think, that are that are listening okay. to this. We have, with the beautiful technological advances that, that we have now, we can work 24 hours around the clock, 365 days a year. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and, and sometimes there is a bit of a cult of productivity. And we worship at the altar of the task list and really getting things done just to get them done. Again, if you are not curing cancer, there there are things that can wait till tomorrow. Some things cannot. There are going to be times when you are all the way up on the wheel and you have to be there. My first Daytona 500 at NASCAR, we had to coordinate with the Secret Service a presidential visit to the Daytona 500 
on, you know, nigh seven days confirmation, seven days notice, mm-hmm. right? So you have in upwards of 200,000 people essentially at an event. And now you have to put most of them through mag detectors, right? So you have to coordinate this incredibly honored tradition and honored events, but it's a lot of work, right? You need, that yeah. is something where you are, you are working and, and communicating with people around the clock, right? That same Daytona 500, after the president's visit, that same Daytona 500 got a torrential rain downpour and was weather delayed. So now you have to egress all of these people and prepare them to ingress the next day to honor their tickets, hoping that the weather is actually good. The next day, when that rained out race actually got conducted, we had a finish line checkered flag, what I would call a near fatal crash with Ryan Newman's Newman's car going across the finish line, nose down, spoiler up, corkscrewing and airborne at 180 miles per hour, landing next to turn one on the roof on fire. That's the moment where I need to look at my husband and my dad and say, uh, you guys need to find your way home. I need yeah. to head to the hauler in the infield with senior leadership because we are locking down here until we find out whether the driver is okay mm-hmm. or not. And to figure out how we are going to talk to the world and the fans and the sport about what just happened. That's a day you need to be all the way up on the wheel. Don't make every day that day. (laughs) Don't make every day that day. You're going to have those days. So don't make every single day that day or you will burn out very quickly. Right? So, So that would be in terms of really finding meaning in your job and, and finding meaningful work, you know, keep perspective on what you're passionate about indeed, but also enjoy finding interest in all these different areas, right? And find joy in life outside of work so that you can find more joy inside of work so that when you go to work, you can be fully present and you can really feel how good it is to be at this particular job doing this work in service of these clients or in service of this business. Absolutely. Just to clarify for my peace of mind and the listeners, the driver was okay, correct? He was. And uh, several days days later, he walked out of the hospital with his children, hand in hand. He was able to actually walk out of the hospital. And to be perfectly honest, I think that is a testament to how incredibly talented, hardworking, and steadfast the design of the car was um, from mm-hmm. the NASCAR, from the NASCAR competition division. Um, you know, they have very hard and fast guidelines and safety is the number one priority. And yeah. I think I think the gravity of that crash was was demonstrative of the work that they do. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'm very glad to hear that. And I'll end with an easy question for you. I just want you to tell our listeners where they can find you if they want to gain, you know, more insight. You've been awesome. So just tell them where else they can find. Oh, sure. I am on LinkedIn at Tracy Lesitar Smith. 
you can find me on there. Um, my family also is on Instagram because we just got back from a overseas sabbatical with the children. Uh, and so our Instagram is the Smiths Sale Forth on Instagram. Okay, I'll have to follow I it. am I am not yet on the TikTok. I <laughs> I am not a frequent Twitter user. So my apologies to um, to those of you who are very active on Twitter. Maybe one day I'll become more active on it. But uh, for the for the time being, I have uh, we have the family has been very very good with uh, just being on the Insta. Listeners, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Julie Marrow. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Starting a new career in the law can feel overwhelming. The ABA YLD provides resources, CLE, and a network of peers from coast to coast to help you settle into your new legal career. Claim your Young Lawyer membership for just $75 at ambar.org join. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back. Now we're going to talk to Julie. Hi, Montana. How are you? Good morning, Julie. <laughs> Good. How are you? Good. Uh, I'm Julie Marrow, your host. This is Pop Law, uh, where pop culture meets the law. And today we have an update on the NIL name image likeness rules and regulations from the NCAA. So if you're not familiar, name image likeness is your right as a person to make money off of just that, your name image likeness, if people are you know, selling things. It's especially with athletes or anything like that. So everybody pretty much has this right. I'm entitled to it. Montana has this right, except college athletes. Things have been pretty wonky for them for a while, but now they're letting them do whatever they want. And there's been a lot of confusion and just uncertainty of how these rules actually work, what kind of deals the players are allowed to have, how involved the schools and boosters and donors and coaches are allowed to be in these contracts for the players also. So the NCAA, it was the very end of October, they put out some more guidance and it didn't really create any new rules, but um, it clarified the level of involvement that coaches can have. And um, also just school personnel in general, um, they're not really, they can't participate in, they can participate in like booster funded organizations and such as collectives to an extent, but they can't request that donations be made to a specific sport. They can't ask that donations or, or contracts, donations be made or contracts be offered to a particular athlete. Uh, so it seems like some of that is being ironed out a little bit. But a big thing, too, is as far as legal services go, 
you know, the universities and the athletic departments, the NCAA clarified are not to provide any additional legal services or um, financial services to the athletes outside of what they provide the rest of the student body. I think that seems fair. Oh, yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, so it's like they can use student legal services, student financial advising services, that sort of thing. Um, But there's no, because I think that's been a lot of the concern, too. It's like we start building this up and we really turn this into a, a side business in college sports. And it's, I don't think that is really um, the goal. Yeah, exactly. So uh, they are allowed, I did see that schools are allowed to provide sort of like resources or information on where you can find more resources for like helping the student athletes with their taxes and uh, the ones who do actually have some of those high dollar NIL deals. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm curious to see how long this will go for just sort of guidance coming out every six months or so until there are some really hard rules. But I think it leaves a lot of the athletes in the schools in limbo too, because it's like if you enter into some of these contracts then the NCAA comes out with more guidance or additional rules and now you're can't really perform under those contracts could be a lot of litigation yeah it'll be interesting to see if they're vetoing if they veto the contracts or if they just you know say okay well those contracts will stand but future we can't do things like this you know just see how they handle it so we will see but i think that's all for today thank you for listening until next time this is pop law and i'm your host julie marrow well listeners that's our show i want to thank tracy so much for joining us today And thank you, as always, for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please recommend our show to a friend and you know where to find us. Until next time, I'm your host, Montana Funk, and you've been listening to Young Lawyer Rising, brought to you by the ABA Young Lawyers Division and the audio professionals at Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.